Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with revelations by the Washington Post and POGO, the Project on Government Oversight, that a revolving door of top U.S. generals and admirals are on Mohammed bin Salman's payroll, overseeing the transfer of the most sophisticated advanced weapons to Saudi Arabia that are not even available to our reliable allies like the UK, Canada and Australia. Joining us is Anel Sheline, a research fellow in the Middle East program at the Quincy Institute and an expert on religious and political authority in the Middle East and North Africa. She has worked as a journalist in Egypt and Yemen and was recently a fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy and is, a current, and is currently completing a book on the strategic use of religious authority in the Arab monarchies since 9-11, focusing on the cases of Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Morocco and Oman. We'll discuss her article at The Hill, An End to U.S. Military Support for Saudi Arabia is Long Overdue. Then we'll speak with one of the founders of Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps, units of which are on the ground in Crimea training Russians in the use of Iranian drones that are raining down destruction on Ukraine's infrastructure, killing civilians. Joining us is Dr. Moshin Sazagara, an Iranian journalist and pro-democracy political activist who was a founder of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps and held several high-ranking positions during the early years of the Iranian Revolution. We'll discuss how the kleptocratic clerical regime in Iran is losing its grip as even members of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps and the besieged militia are refusing to shoot down teenage girls demanding freedom and democracy. Then finally, we'll examine what progressives can do to reverse the republic's slide into oligarchy as a reactionary Supreme Court that is primarily a political actor entrenches minority rule by an anti-democratic Republican Party. Joining us is Joseph Fishkin, a professor of law at the University of California in Los Angeles and the author of Bottlenecks, A New Theory of Equal Opportunity. And also joining us is William Forbath, who holds a Lloyd M. Benson Chair in Law and is Associate Dean for Research at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the author of Law and the Shaping of the American Labor Movement. Together they are co-authors of The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution, Reconstructing the Economic Foundations of American Democracy, and we will discuss their article at the New York Times, How Liberals Should Confront a Right-Wing Supreme Court. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Anel Sheline, who's a research fellow in the Middle East program at the Quincy Institute and an expert on religious and political authority in the Middle East and North Africa. She has worked as a journalist in Egypt and Yemen, was recently a fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy, and is currently completing a book on the strategic use of religious authority by the Arab monarchies since 9-11, focusing on the cases of Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Morocco and Oman. And she has an article at The Hill, an end to U.S. military support for Saudi Arabia is long overdue. 
Welcome to Background Briefing, Anel Sheline. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, and uh, thanks to Revelations in the Washington Post and at POGO, the Project on Government Oversight. We're learning now about this revolving door of top U.S. generals and admirals who are on Mohammed bin Salman's payroll, and they include uh, Marine General James Jones, a National Security Advisor to President Barack Obama, retired Army General Keith Alexander, who was the head of the National Security Agency under Obama and President George W. Bush, and Trump's Defense Secretary, General Mattis, uh, who was on the UAE payrolls, and there's a huge list of others. So what's going on here? Because one of the anomalies is where you find, now we're learning that basically Mohammed bin Salman is in alliance with Putin, and he's stiffing Biden by jacking up the price of oil just ahead of the elections. And it's no secret that both MBS and Putin want Trump to come back. So that's bad enough. But the fact that all of these high-tech weapons are being transferred to Saudi Arabia, this unreliable ally, which aren't available to our reliable allies like the UK, Canada and Australia, is in itself a monstrosity. And how did that happen? Uh, that's that's a very good question. I mean, unfortunately, spe- you know, specifically to that point about why is it that we tend to see the the transfer of some of our our highest, you know, most most um, powerful weapons capabilities to both Saudi Arabia, but uh, also the UAE. You know, there's there's a, a standing contract to sell the UAE F-35s. Um, which many other countries are still waiting in line to to get to have their contracts for F-35s fulfilled. Um, I mean, this is about the power of the U.S. weapons industry. Saudi Arabia is our largest customer. They, you know, consistently buy massive amounts of of American weapons and other uh, national security products. And the UAE is is also a very important customer here. And and both of these countries. Um, are aware of the the strength of the U.S. weapons industry in Congress and sort of in the the sway that that industry has over our political system. Um, they invest heavily in lobbying efforts in Washington to try to advance their their causes and and their preferred narrative. Um, so unfortunately, you know, the military industrial complex, I think, is playing a stronger role here, even than oil. You know, for a long time, there was this notion that the United States um, is so dependent on Saudi Arabia for oil. And then that narrative was sort of overturned following the shale revolution, when the U.S. suddenly um, took the position of, of the largest oil exporter in the world. But um you know, as long as oil remains a global commodity uh, and is traded on global markets, um, no single country will be able to to set the price of oil. Saudi Arabia is one of the only countries that has the spare capacity to either ramp up or scale back production in a way that it can influence the price of oil. So, but again, just, just to really highlight the fact that I think a lot of the the current U.S.-Saudi relationship has a lot more to do with the fact that they are a, um, a major purchaser of U.S. weapons um, and not just that the United States remains dependent on their oil. Well, but that doesn't explain why these generals and admirals are doing this. I mean, is this an example of American greed and the lure of easy money? I mean... 
it's actually in the Constitution, the Foreign Emoluments Clause of the Constitution, it forbids federal officeholders of accepting gifts, quote, from any king, prince or foreign state without the consent of Congress. And I, I know they've found a workaround. But I just find that unsavory. That there's this whole system of trading public service in for private gain. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think this this is a really stunning series of revelations from the Washington Post and Pogo, as you mentioned. Um, just the fact that, as you said, constitutionally, um, you know, public officials and members of the military are not allowed to obtain uh, gifts or money from foreign powers without permission from Congress. And as you said, Congress outsourced that to the Defense Department. And as as the the this this story demonstrate or pointed out, ninety five percent of these um, contracts, if they if if someone even asked for permission to to get a, a lucrative consulting gig like this, almost all of them were were approved. And there was really almost no oversight. So it seems to be, um, if someone even asked for permission, it's really just a rubber stamp that DOD says, sure, you can go ahead and work for Mohammed bin Salman or Mohammed bin Zayed of, of the UAE, um, or really almost almost any other country. Um, I think part of what, what this speaks to, um, unfortunately, has to do uh, with, with some of what we've seen with the expansion of military contractors. So while on the one hand, Obviously, the the U.S. military itself is is the largest and best by far, uh, most highly funded military in the world. Um, but but something that has ballooned following 9/11 and and in the wars on the war on terror, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, are the role of military contractors. And these are individuals who can earn a significantly larger amount of money than they would if they were simply in the regular service. And so I think this has partly contributed to this sort of um, assumption within those in the military that there, there are more lucrative jobs for them, that they can sort of start through the traditional path, uh, do their, their typical military service. And then there are a lot of other avenues where they can make, you know, 10 times more money, um, or if not more than, than 10 times more, again, depending on sort of their level of seniority. Um, uh, this, you know, not only does this raise questions about some of the decisions that are being made while they are in active service, you know, if, if a general or, or some high ranking member or, or, or even a lower ranking member is thinking about, hey, I'd, I'd really like to make sure I get that cushy contract after I'm done with with my active duty service that could influence their decision making. And in particular, it contributes to um, the ongoing presence um, of, of US troops in the region, this assumption that the United States has to remain so heavily committed to this part of the world. And, you know, as I said, there's there's often a, this notion that it's all about oil. Um, but I, I think partly these revelations demonstrate that it is also about the the sort of narrow interests of many of these individuals who would like to kind of keep that relationship going, would like to continue to have access to these kinds of of lucrative contracts. And you know to to one make one additional point and to perhaps give um, some of these individuals the benefit of the doubt, what I've read um, in some of this reporting, you know some of these are are people who would like the United States to spend less blood and treasure in the Middle East. And so they see, building up these militaries 
um, and you know they see that their own role in helping to build up these militaries as contributing to a future where the United States is no longer um, so necessary or is no longer quite so bogged down in the region. Um, which, uh, while um, you know, if if we take that at face value and and say okay, that's perhaps that is part of your motivation here, in addition to the lucrative contracts you're getting. But unfortunately, I think the opposite of that would be true, is that, you know, we continue to just see ongoing U.S. involvement in the region, um, U.S. military involvement in the region, um, in part because, you know, just the, the appetite for these kinds of contracts would merely would merely be, be maintained or grow. Well, apparently very few have of these revolving door deals have been stopped by. One was stopped by the Department of Defense's Inspector General, and that was, of course, with General Flynn, who collected $449,807 from Russian and Turkish interests in 2019, uh, one year after he retired from the army. The money from the Turks actually was to kidnap a Turkish cleric who Erdogan is obsessed with <laughs> capturing. And then, of course, he Flynn was paid $38,557 to go to the 10th anniversary of Russia Today RT in Moscow, where he sat at the same table, actually next to Putin, along with the useful idiot, the Green Party candidate, Jill Stein, and uh, Julian Assange's father. So that's one of the rare occasions. But one of the things that the Post article tells us about General Jones's interactions, first of all, he was hired by the Saudi Defense Ministry, which is, like everything else in Saudi Arabia, is under the control of Mohammed bin Salman. And apparently MBS wanted him to sort of rationalize the defense spending of the Saudis because largely what happens there is that because of restrictions in the Quran, they have to sort of launder their money, these princes uh, in the royal family, through these defense contractors. And they haven't really, you know, they've just been buying stuff willy-nilly. But he actually, MBS wanted him to buy top-of-the-line stuff. And he's really getting value for money, is he not? Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I just to clarify, perhaps for listeners, I, I believe what you were alluding to there was the injunction against um, usury or, you know, charging interest. And so, as you said, this is part of um, dealing with, with kind of money laundering or, or you know, means of obtaining uh, money for some Saudi royals is is to sort of skim off from from these contracts. Um and you know to to your point about the um the the case of Michael Flynn you know while although when it broke it seemed really um quite egregious and astonishing and and you know this the specifics of that case are indeed <laughs> fairly egregious um especially pertaining to the the you know the desired capture of of the cleric Gulen um whom Erdogan would wants to see extradited to Turkey. But I think what's been interesting is to realize that Michael Flynn was really just the barest tip of the iceberg, you know, when when he was held up as as this example of of um, you know, acting in a manner that could be could be seen as traitorous to the United States. In fact, you know, he was coming from a culture of relative impunity that that this was, you know, he he was one of many many uh, military officials engaged in such behaviors. Um, and I think just reiterates the extent to which the Department of the Defense, um, Department of Defense is is accustomed to this sort of impunity. You know, the DoD has never passed an audit, has never been subjected to an audit 
you know, receives massive amounts of money every year that is, is um, you know, the, the National Defense Authorization Act is the one of the only pieces of legislation that Congress manages to pass every year. Um, because almost no one in Congress is willing to to vote against defense. Um, and so as a result, we see a, just huge amounts of money um, sloshing around the Pentagon. And then, as as you said, then the, these individuals then go on and, and make even more money when they hire themselves out to various foreign governments. And of course, in the Washington Post article, it also mentions that William Cohen, who was Secretary defense in the Clinton administration and a Republican senator, he was also was paid by the Saudis through General Jones. So we've run out of time, Anel, but um, do you think there's any chance that there will be some kind of congressional action to punish Saudi Arabia for basically becoming an ally of uh, Russia against uh, the United States? And clearly, obviously, they want Trump to come back and they're paving the way. And and I imagine if Trump does become the candidate, Saudi money will pour in. You know, I, I think you're absolutely right um, that the the Saudis are eager to have Trump back, and they're they're willing to pay a lot of money to see that happen. Um, I'm I worry that some of the outrage we're seeing from Congress is um, somewhat cynical because some of what's being proposed has has no actual path to being passed. So, for example, things like the the legislation to remove all U.S. troops from the UAE and Saudi Arabia. While I would support something like that, um, the it, there, there's not a realistic path for a legislative path for that to happen. On the other hand, the one legislative vehicle that does have bipartisan support as well as an expedited path to a floor vote um, is the Yemen War Powers Resolution. This requires only a simple majority to pass. It would not have to be filibuster proof. Um, and this would end all U.S. support for and involvement in Saudi Arabia's war in and against and blockade of Yemen. Um, I think this is crucial not only because uh, for, for the future of Yemen and, and ending U.S. complicity in, in the horrific treatment uh, of, of the Yemeni people by Saudi Arabia, um, but this would also send a very clear message to the Saudis that we are no longer going to support this this horrifying war, um, which is something Biden had said he would do right when he first took office, and yet um, up to this point he has not yet done so. Well, Anel Sheline, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you again for having me. Great to speak with you. Likewise, and again, I've been speaking with Anel Sheline, who's a research fellow in the Middle East program at the Quincy Institute and an expert on religious and political authority in the Middle East and North Africa. She's worked as a journalist in Egypt and Yemen, was recently a senior fellow, was recently a fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy, and is currently completing a book on the strategic use of religious authority in the Arab monarchy since 9-11, focusing on the cases of Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Morocco, and Oman. And she has an article at The Hill, An End to U.S. Military Support for Saudi Arabia is Long Overdue. We're going to take a brief station break and back speaking with one of the founders of Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps about how the kleptocratic clerical regime in Iran is losing its grip as even members of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps and the besieged militia are refusing to shoot down teenage girls demanding freedom and democracy. He fastened all the triggers for the others to fire and then you sat back and watch when the death count gets higher 
you hide in your mansion while the young people's blood flows out of their bodies and is buried in the mud. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dr. Moshin Sazagara, who's an Iranian journalist and pro-democracy political activist, who was a founder of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps and held several high-ranking positions during the early years of the Iranian Revolution. Welcome to Background Briefing, Moshin Sazagara. Thank you for having me. So, Moshin... Today, Wednesday, in a closed-door meeting of the United Nations Security Council meeting, the United States, Britain, and France are raising complaints and concerns about Iranians' armed transfers to Russia. Uh, and apparently, already, uh, Ukraine has invited UN experts to inspect these downed Iranian drones. They've been raining in over uh, Ukraine and destroying infrastructure. These are the Iranian-made Shahed-136 drones. So how can the Iranian government continue to deny that they're doing this? Uh, I don't know. This is what they uh, always do. Uh, For instance, right now in front of the revolution of the people against uh, this regime, they kill uh, high school uh, students and they, they they deny it and say that yes uh, they she committed herself suicide or 17 years old student had heart problem and whatever this is what they do uh, in international uh, affairs as well they lie they deny uh, and think that nobody understands and nobody they find it out anyway as far as I know from inside the regime, they have sent uh, drones uh, to Russia and they are going to deliver missiles as well uh, and uh, new models of drone as well. So that is the new model that the Russians have asked for, uh, which is the Arash 2 long-range attack drones. Now, they've said that they're not going to deliver that. They said in September that they weren't, uh, they'd refused the request by President Putin for the Arash 2 long-range drones. But they've changed their mind? Is that... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 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 You know, uh, what uh, I have heard from experts in Washington, D.C., that Army of the Russia was just a paper tiger. Now that they have uh, invaded Ukraine and confronted uh, army of Ukraine, everybody can see that uh, everything was just empty boxes. I mean, uh, they are in shortage of uh, the, uh, immun- uh, you know, shells, uh, shortage of missiles, uh, tanks, everything, artillery, it seems that uh, that kleptocracy of Putin, because of the corruption inside the system, the figures that we heard for several years that they spent, for instance, $50 billion just for innovation in, in the army, all of them were just lie and empty. Now they need to many equipment and facilities. 
uh, as you may have heard, they, 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 they are asking uh, from even North Korea for the shells. And they are asking uh, Iran uh, for missiles, for drones. And I have to say, as an uh, Iranian-American, I have to say that the uh, regime of Iran is a kleptocracy as well. And every, every single of uh, missiles or drones uh, in the uh, storages of Revolutionary Guard, they have spent the, the thousands or sometimes millions of dollars to uh, produce them. And now they are sending them this, you know, uh, wealth of the people of Iran to Russia. Well, apparently the Russians now want to buy hundreds of these Iranian short-range surface-to-surface missiles called the Zalfagar and the Fateh 110. And apparently they, they've asked for hundreds, and, and Iran has said they'll ship maybe a, a couple of hundred. So there seems to be an element of desperation here on the part of the Russians. Uh, yeah, because as far as I know, all the missiles, these types of missiles are Iran, uh, of Iran are only 1,000, around 1,000. So a couple of hundreds they send, and this is what they have. As I said, they are sending the facilities that has spent uh, millions of dollars for that to Russia. And I have heard from the experts here that it doesn't uh, work good for Russia because they need thousands of them, not not just a couple of hundreds. So I don't think that it will help the army of the Russia. So, Dr. Moshin Sazagara, since you were one of the founders of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, they apparently have Guard Corps trainers now in uh, Crimea, training the Russians how to use these drones that are raining down on Ukrainian civilians and hitting uh, critical infrastructure. The Shahed-136 drones, apparently they're a delta-wing drone that carries an explosive charge of 88 pounds compared to an artillery shell, which has about 23 pounds of explosive. So... They're, very, they're, they're quite devastating, and they're killing civilians. Yeah. Is there any way that the Iranian people know what's being done in their name? Uh, yeah, I think that uh, Ukrainians already have announced that uh, they are under attack by Iranian facilities. And I think that what Israel uh, has started to say to Ukraine that uh, you should uh, uh, announce that uh, our common enemy, Islamic Republic of Iran, enemy of Israel and Ukraine together, is important uh, and do not stand neutral uh, in your diplomatic uh, relationship with Islamic Republic of Iran. And I think that very soon uh, government of Ukraine will do that. Uh, anyway, uh, 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 Iranian facilities, which has been sent to uh, Crimea, uh, Crimea is uh, shows 
that now Russia main concern is how to defend Crimea uh, and they know that later soon uh, Ukrainian forces will uh, attack and will go for liberation of uh, Crimea that has been uh, uh, under uh, control of Russia for uh, several years. So they want, uh, and as uh, President Zelensky said, uh, there is another uh, point of view you can look at this. It shows that how the hands of Putin is empty, uh, that uh, he should borrow uh, facilities from Iran. But inside of Iran itself, I would assume that the Revolutionary Guard Corps, along with the Basij and the morality police, have their hands full with this revolution going on that's driven by the young people who continue to show absolute bravery in confronting this state repression. And obviously what holds these, this illegitimate regime, which you described as a kleptocracy, which is absolutely accurate, I mean... You know, Moshtaba Khamenei, the son of the supreme leader who's supposed to be uh, angling to be the next supreme leader, even though he doesn't have any religious credentials, he owns a big bank. And I understand that Iranians are moving their deposits out of that bank into other banks. But the people that run this horrible regime in Iran are kleptocrats in religious robes. Is, Is that a fair way to describe them? Uh, exactly. Uh, you know, what is going on in Iran that started from just one month ago? During uh, 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 the last one month showed that, first of all, this is a revolution. All groups of the people, from rich people to poor people, from Tehran to all around Iran, different ethnics, everybody is now involved. And when a nation united together, come to the scene, nobody can resist in front of that. Let me uh, tell you uh, uh, some figures from inside the regime. Uh, uh, On on paper, they had 2.5 million volunteers in uh, uh, Basij, the militia. Uh, They relied that they can bring at least half a million of them to the scene to confront the people. But during last month, astonishingly, uh, they uh, say, they uh, confess inside themselves that less than 10,000 of them uh, can uh, have come and uh, they don't come to confront the people. Uh, Because of the pressure in every neighborhood, people know them, people talk to their families. Uh, and they are ashamed to come to confront the, the uh, you know, high school students or, or, or the, the, uh, the other women in the streets or, or a brave young generation. Uh, and even inside the revolutionary regard, uh, the internal figures show that uh, out of 134,000 uh, members of revolutionary regard, uh, uh, only they can rely, uh, so far, they can rely on at most 50,000 of them to confront the people. Uh, the others uh, uh, are not uh, ready to go to kill the people, and more than 20% of them disobeyed so far 
to uh, uh, shoot to the people, although uh, the order is shoot to kill the, at least the leaders of demonstrations and protests, but uh, many of them refuse to do that. And police as well. Uh, uh, forces of police, which are about 60,000 to 70,000. Uh, I mean, uh, this is how the, re- the revolutions work. When the people come to, to the scene, then defection uh, uh, starts uh, in suppression machine and double thinkers, as Nathan Sharansky says, starts to increase amongst the uh, governmental uh, suppression machine. And what role is the military playing in this? Uh, uh, the, uh, Artesh, the uh, classic military of Iran, is out of uh, any political uh, uh, activity. And fortunately, there are about 400,000, uh, three times more than Revolutionary Guard. And uh, they are not in, in front of the people. Uh, they don't kill the people. Uh, and nobody can bring them to the scene. Why? Because uh, Khamenei, the leader, and his son know that if they bring uh, any troop from uh, the uh, army, the Atesh military, to the scene, easily they may join the people. Even uh, right now that they are in their garrisons, uh, uh, one of their worries is that maybe they join the people or open the gates of garrisons and uh, the uh, weapons to the people. They have changed uh, some of the uh, officers uh, uh, and uh, some of the top grade in garrisons to make sure that uh, they don't join the people. And I think that in final stages of this revolution, definitely military of Iran will join the people. And this is one of the chances. Uh, of uh, uh, people of Iran, that we have a classic military, which is not in front of the people, and uh, they are united. When this regime goes, they can uh, help the people to keep the country secure. So is it possible, Mohsen Sazagara, that the world's, two of the world's worst kleptocrats and killers, the uh, Khamenei and his son and the regime, in Iran and Putin and his kleptocratic and murderous regime in Russia, is it possible that they could collapse? I mean, uh, I wouldn't count on Russia collapsing soon, but it looks as if Iran is on the brink of collapse. Is that right? Uh, You know, as a joke, people uh, uh, say, because now they ridicule the regime very, very much in Persian uh, network. uh, they say that now there is a race between Putin and Khamenei, which one will collapse sooner, uh, or, or they may go together. Uh, I don't know inside Russia. Uh, I, I have heard that the uh, uh, army of military of Russia is now very uh, uh, dissatisfied, and they say that we have never been humiliated like that. Uh, like that uh, during uh, uh, our, our long history, uh, and they blame Putin. Uh, so in Russia, uh, after uh, their defeat in Ukraine, especially if Ukrainians succeed to push them out of their country and liberate their, their lands, 
uh, everybody says that there will be many uh, uh, consequences in, in Russia, but I can't say what will happen because I'm not a Russia uh, Russia expert. But uh, in Iran, uh, I'm sure uh, that uh, a continuation of this revolution, resistance of the people, a continuation of uh, the protests and the strikes that is on the way uh, inside the truck drivers, inside the oil industries of Iran, inside uh, uh, the universities that already started, uh, and uh, many other parts of the country, uh, I'm sure that this regime will collapse. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, Khamenei and his son, this is a question uh, from the people that say that when they are defeated, where they have to go in the world, uh, because uh, they are enemy of all, all, all the world. Some people say that they may flee to Venezuela or Syria or whatever. Anyway, it's not important, uh, uh, but what is important that uh, I'm sure that people will win. Well, that is gratifying, and you have to. Uh, the reason that they'll win is that you know, sixteen, seventeen-year-old young Iranian girls are standing in front of bullets, and some of them being shot yep. down, and that will be in the memory of the Iranian people for a long time, will it not? These young heroes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to say that uh, what is going on on Iran, the real heroes are the young generation who are with uh, bare hands, they're fighting with this regime in every university, every high school, every street, every neighborhood. Uh, and the media is very important, uh, especially satellite TVs from outside Iran and social networks, although they have stopped uh, internet for many parts of Iran, but uh, uh, they use that. And third, I have to, to mention the names of Iranian celebrities, uh, sportsmen and women, or uh, actors, or uh, filmmakers, or writers. Uh, uh, they have joined the people. Uh, many of them are now in jail, like uh, uh, Jafar Panahi or Rasulov, two um, uh, famous international filmmakers uh, that uh, oppose this regime, and, and many other celebrities. And uh, these, you know, uh, vast spectrum of the people uh, and uh, the uh, prominent figures inside the people now shows a good unity uh, in Iran and uh, different, different uh, ethnics of Iran. I mean, Kurds, Turks, Baluch, uh, Arab, Fars, uh, Turkmen. Uh, every part of Iran uh, uh, now they have only uh, they have been united under two slogans: first, uh, down with regime, uh, Islamic Republic. We don't want Islamic Republic anymore. Uh, Khamenei should go. And second, uh, woman, life, liberty. Uh, uh, this revolution is for uh, equality for women and any any type of discrimination. We want life in front of a, a medieval regime that invites to death and the liberty uh, or freedom. Uh, that means democracy. That means human rights, uh, uh, freedom of, of speech, 
uh, and uh, uh, everything under this slogan. So uh, these two uh, main slogans of this revolution now has united uh, the people of Iran in fighting in front of this regime. Well, I thank you for joining us here today, Dr. Moshin Sazagara. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Moshin Sazagara, who's an Iranian journalist and pro-democracy political activist who was a founder of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps and held several high-ranking positions during the early years of the Iranian Revolution. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining what progressives can do to reverse the republic slide into oligarchy as a reactionary Supreme Court that is primarily a political actor entrenches minority rule by an anti-democratic Republican Party. برای توی کوچه رخصیدن برای ترسیدن به وقت بوسیدن برای خواهرم خواهرت خواهرامون برای تغییر مغزها که پوسیدن برای شرمندگی برای بیپولی برای حسرت یک زندگی معمولی برای کودک زبالگرد و آرزوهاش برای Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Joseph Fishkin, a professor of law at the University of California, Los Angeles, who previously taught at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the author of Bottlenecks, A New Theory of Equal Opportunity. And also joining us is William Forbath, who holds a Lloyd M. Benson Chair in Law and is Associate Dean for Research at the University of Texas at Austin. And he's the author of Law and the Shaping of the American Labor Movement. Together, they are the co-authors of The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution, Reconstructing the Economic Foundations of American Democracy, and they have an article at the New York Times, How Liberals Should Confront a Right-Wing Supreme Court. Welcome to Background Briefing, Joseph Fishkin and William Forbath. Thank you. Thanks. Well, thanks. And let me start with Joseph. Um, President Biden, of course, is on the stump, is saying that if you elect a few more Democrats, particularly to the Senate, he'll be able to codify Roe. Is that the only path forward here since... We seem to have a incredibly reactionary Supreme Court controlled uh, largely, as you point out in your article, by Justice Samuel Alito. And although the court proclaims its fidelity to the past, its role seems to be to entrench minority rule by the Republican Party. Well, I will say that for abortion rights, a federal statute is certainly the most important tool. And there will certainly be conservative justices who attempt to read that statute narrowly. Um, but I don't think there'll be a majority for just ignoring it. So that's an important first step. But on, on this and many other centrally important issues of our time, Congress in enacting statutes that it knows the court is going to be hostile to, needs to think about very carefully how to, how to write those statutes in such a way that it gives the court pause about striking them down or narrowing them too much. And I think that's true even of a Roe statute, a, a statute codifying abortion rights. I would like to see Congress say in such a statute that if this statute is somehow struck down as exceeding uh, Congress's power, 
then here comes a different backup program that gets enacted instead, perhaps one that directly spends money to help people around the country obtain abortions. That would be on even firmer constitutional footing than the first statute and would be even harder to build a majority of conservative justices to strike down. So that's the kind of thinking that I think Congress needs to engage in, treating the court not as the referee, but as on the opposing team. Well, indeed, your article at the New York Times, How Liberals Should Confront a Right-Wing Supreme Court, argues that liberal lawmakers should view the court primarily as a hostile political actor. And William Forbath, not only has the oligarchy bought this reactionary Supreme Court, the same oligarchy is in the process of buying the legislative branch, at least the House, I mean, $1.6 billion to Leonard Leo from just one oligarch is being spent and the Democrats are being so radically outspent, particularly in the Senate races, that I don't know whether you get emails, but my emails are clogged up with desperate pleas for money from endangered Democratic senators or, or candidates. I mean, it is unbelievable how much money Mitch McConnell is pouring in to these Senate races in order to save the Senate. Uh, but the money, thanks to Citizens United, appears to be coming violently from other plutocrats. True that. And once again, um, what, what Joey mentioned a, mo a moment ago, the, the spending power may be at least one avenue through which Congress can respond to um, the landscape in front of us with respect to campaign spending. In other words, a sort of head-on collision with Citizens United and the courts um, bars on, on restraining campaign spending is one avenue, but it's not the only one. Another one is for, um, is for Congress to provide public funding for candidates up and down people's tickets in many, many domains of, of campaign spending. Congress can do a great deal to, to counter private money by supplying public money. But Joey is our resident election law expert and I'll let him sort of amplify that if he wants to. So just before you start Joey, does that mean that the Disclose Act has to be passed? Is that the answer? Well, the Disclose Act is an answer. I think uh, Billy's point about public financing uh, is is perhaps an even more important answer. The Disclose Act would do a lot of things, though, and uh, I think just being able, uh, just people being able to understand where some of this money is coming from, would certainly uh, help. Uh, one of the challenges in this area is, you know, here you're you're pointing out that the current pattern of spending is skewing who the Senate and Congress are going to consist of. And then uh, Willie and I are noting there's a lot that the Congress could do to fix this, but you know there's a certain circularity here because um, what we're going to have to have is basically uh, in order to preserve a functioning democracy, Democrats and hopefully a few 
Republicans who also agree that we need a functioning democracy will have to gain enough political power to reshape the system in ways that will be more conducive to majorities rather than minority rule in the future. Um, and campaign finance reforms, including the Disclose Act and also more robust public financing regimes are, are part of that. A more robust Voting Rights Act is part of that. And in a lot of these areas, after you know, if somehow Democrats can get the power to enact these things, the next question is what will the Supreme Court do with them? Uh, and will will there be a majority of conservative justices on the court to strike these things down? And that's where our, um, our op-ed and this piece of the story in our book is really intervening, is how should Congress, if and when it has the power to intervene, hopefully soon in some of these uh, areas, how should they try to structure what they're doing in order to uh, stop it from running aground at the court? So William Forbath, would you answer that rhetorical question? <laughs> what, what should Congress do? Congress, in the specifics, in general, Congress has to sort of do, you know, at the most general level in two things. First, it has to, um, in a host of areas, campaign, you know, and elections being one of them, voting rights um, and, and voter suppression being another. And let's not forget another theme that the, that the op-ed um, chimes in with, namely, union organizing and rebuilding a broad labor movement in order to give working Americans some clout once more, both in economic life and importantly in politics, right? So in each case um, that we've mentioned, Congress and the Democratic Party needs to get out of its defensive crouch and um, have as robust and affirmative constitutional vision as their conservative and reactionary rivals. So that over against the court and the repub saying that these various important reforms are unconstitutional, they need to say not only are they constitutional, the constitution demands these kinds of measures from Congress. The Constitution requires this kind of redistribution or, or sort of um, a writing of the balance of economic power in this country and, the, and wealth in this country as a kind of undergirding and condition for the continuation of a, of a constitutional democracy. So Congress needs to be talking a different talk in respect of the public debate over the constitution. And then and from when we turn from you know, the, the cosmos to the plumbing and the, the sort of particulars of how to construct um, strong measures that'll sort of survive or overcome the court, it will vary from context to context. In some places there may be no alternative, but to say, if, if the court, right, persists in striking down 
laws in this domain, let's say in respect of workers' rights to organize, um, or if the court has the you know, chutzpah to, to strike down not simply campaign finance regulation, but public spending, then Congress will have to say, we have to take the court's jurisdiction away. Congress has done that specifically in the labor area um, in the past. Cong Congress has done that more recently in the Inflation Reduction Act. So that the Constitution authorizes Congress to fine tune and reshape just what the court can and cannot hear. So, Joey Fishkin, your article indicates that uh, this Supreme Court is already incredibly unpopular. I don't know that naming and the shaming can work, but I noticed that uh, Senator Whitehouse, who's been the leading critic of the dark money that's fueled this conservative takeover or right-wing takeover of the Supreme Court via Leonard Leo, he's suggesting, I think he's already introduced legislation, hasn't he, to have term limits on Supreme Court justices? Yeah, I don't know the specifics of White House's proposal, but I think, you know, it's an important place where we are, uh, where the public and particularly uh, Democrats and liberals and that half of the public are beginning to move from a position in which they sort of said, well, you know, it's a conservative court, uh, it's not deciding things the way I would like, but it doesn't seem like it's in need of any fundamental changes or reform. That was where I think most liberals were for the last several decades. Toward a place, uh, and, and some of this is just because of the current far right turn, and some of it may be sort of generational as well. I think more voters are moving toward a position that the court is in need of uh, major uh, reforms. I don't think it, it's that uh, close. I think we have, we're at the beginning right now of a chapter in our history in which uh, we don't know how the end will be, but it's it's not going to be, you know, next year. It's going to take a while. But I do think that um, members of, of Congress and senators, even senators who would not have even entertained some of this stuff uh, a few years ago, are beginning to ask the question, how should we uh, reform the court? And I guess in my mind, there's a couple of different approaches to that. One set of reforms kind of harks back to the more moderate conservative courts of the last few years and says, well, what we need to do is make the court more moderate. You know, let's get, let's get more O'Connors, you know, back on the court somehow. And those types of reforms often have elaborate systems of let's let each party have certain numbers of justices and whatever. These are very hard to enact, but I also think they have the wrong goal. The goal should be to check the current far-right court, and in the same way that FDR's court packing plan caused the right-wing Supreme Court of you know, uh, 90 years ago to back off from what it was doing, the current goal should be to press the court to uh, to back off. And if we actually reform it, I would favor reforms that um, allow for the regular appointment of justices. You know, for example, every two years, a new justice will be appointed. And there are various proposals for how to deal with either that there would be a lot of justices or maybe 
only the most recent nine should decide most of the cases, uh, et cetera. There are various ways to do it that might be able to be done within the current powers of Congress without a constitutional amendment. Term limits, which is one of the most popular reform proposals, ironically, uh, and certainly could be done, would need a constitutional amendment. And so that one would be much harder to enact just because of the way our hardwired constitutional structure says you need to get, you know, three quarters of the states to ratify. It's just uh, almost an insurmountable bar. But I think there are many different court reform proposals that could be uh, enacted without an amendment and that should be debated in part because even talking about them sends the right signal to the court that it has gone far out of bounds of where the people are thinking it should be. So just in the last minute, let me give the last word to William Forbath. You mentioned in the article at the New York Times how liberals should confront a right-wing Supreme Court that previous generations of liberals and progressives have strove to prevent the republic from sliding into oligarchy. How would you rate this current generation in terms of the awareness that the real struggle in America is a struggle between democracy and oligarchy? I think this generation of uh, liberals and progressives over the past decade or so have have become you know clear clear sighted and eloquent about about that peril in many many ways we've seen bernie sanders may have been if not the first one of the first sort of nationally um prominent politicians to put that proposition squarely on the on the table. Um, and I don't think that the the worry or the proposition has, has gone away. So in terms of retrieving that that way of, of thinking about the the perils of the American experiment, I think this generation is 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 doing fine. It's having to deal with the, you know, by now deeply entrenched sort of inequalities that you know arose gradually when liberals in particular progressives maybe not so much but anyway the sort of mainstream of what what we used to call the liberal establishment um, was blithely right unconcerned about growing wealth inequalities and the growing power of a um, of a small of small economic elites um, so, so, so liberals and progressives are having to make up for a long time when they sort of lost sight of those concerns and um, and the institutions which right, held up at least a, a a much much less grossly unequal economic order. Those institutions were being severely eroded. That's a story you're familiar with, Ian, and, and so are most of your listeners. There were that it would be a much easier matter to re-up a more democratic economic order um, if we could turn the, the clock back to the 1970s, sort of 70s, 80s, and 90s. But now we have to deal with what we've got. And so there's a gulf so far between the the insight that we're we're sliding into oligarchy, and the levers of power we need in order to avert it. But it's certainly still doable. 
Well, I thank you both for joining us here today. Joseph Fishkin, a professor of law at the University of California, Los Angeles, who previously taught at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the author of Bottleneck, A New Theory of Equal Opportunity. And also joining us has been William Forbath, who holds a Lloyd M. Benson Chair in Law and the Associate Dean for Research at the University of Texas at Austin. And he's the author of Law and the Shaping of the American Labor Movement. And together they are the co-authors of The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution, Reconstructing the Economic Foundations of American Democracy. And they have an article in the New York Times, How Liberals Should Confront a Right-Wing Supreme Court. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.